right, do you remember what treasures we got last week? Well, we got a transformed life. We were once sinners, and he made us into new ladies. That's pretty cool. Uh, we were given more mercy. See, he could have left us to our own demise, but he didn't. But God, we learned how important those two words are, but God. And we found out how much more he loves us. That seems to be a, a theme throughout Ephesians, doesn't it? But it was his love for us that compelled him to show us that mercy. And we got more grace. Instead of giving us what we deserve, which is death, he gave us his grace. We also have a new life. We have a future. And he promises that with this new life, we have a wonderful plan. We have a wonderful purpose. And now, this week, breaking down the walls. And so before we get into God's word, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so, so blessed that you have given us this wonderful scripture, this wonderful book that is so applicable to today, that we can take all these words and apply them to our lives. And so as we go through this scripture, would you be with us, Lord? Would you uh, guide and direct us? Would you open our eyes to see and our ears to hear that which you want us to learn? And so we love you, we thank you, we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. And it says, don't forget that you Gentiles, he's speaking to us, used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews. All right, they actually use that term still today. We are heathens according to the Jewish people. But that's just their culture. I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying that's their culture. So after telling the folks at Ephesus about how they were now alive because of what Jesus did for them, he reminds them of their condition before Jesus. But why all this circumcision thing? I mean, I don't know about you. Whenever I think about it, I get a little uncomfortable because it just sounds weird, right? But I won't describe exactly what it is. You can look it up on the Internet yourself. But I will, I will relay what I found in commentaries, and I think it best describes the why. So the miraculous nature of Isaac's birth, you remember Abraham and Sarah, he was old, she was old, and they had Isaac. But it's, Isaac's birth is the key to understanding circumcision as a sign of the covenant, after God made his promise to Abraham, every male member of Abraham's household was required to be circumcised. So every male now knows that circumcision was connected to God's promise. It probably didn't make any sense, though, until Sarah actually became pregnant and they saw that God's promises are being fulfilled. So everyone in Abraham's household witnessed the, the miracle of Isaac's birth. And from that point on, every male understood why they had to be circumcised. Their entire race, their very existence began with a miraculous act of God. So every woman is reminded of this when she had sexual relationships with her, uh, her Israelite husband and when her sons were also circumcised. So circumcision was a visible continuous reminder 
that Israel owed his existence to Yahweh, who created them out of nothing. So, conclusion. This is a reminder to the Jews that they are to be set apart. They're different. So, no, no doubt, because of what they had to go through, they thought they were justified in their disdain for the, for the heathens. So, let's look at how they arrived there. Verse 11 continues on. Who, the Jews, were proud of their circumcision, even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. The Jews thought that because they were circumcised, they were better than all Gentiles. So, even though it was only an outward example of their faith in God, they still thought they were better. But here comes Paul, a Jew, telling them circumcision really isn't that big of a deal. In fact, he told them it's been replaced. Can you imagine? They're going, you mean we've done all of this for nothing? <laughs> Colossians 2. Whoops. I am missing one of my slides. I am so sorry. But Colossians 2, 11 through 12 says, when you came to Christ, you were circumcised, but not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision by cutting away your sinful nature. For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized, and with him you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. So Paul is describing what happens when one is baptized, but we must understand the physical act of baptism is the outward action of what has already occurred within your heart. So it's also important to note that even if you've been baptized, say, as a baby, in the physical sense, that does not mean you're necessarily saved. So you see, we kind of goes back to what we learned last week about it's by faith you are saved. It's not works. You see, baptism can be a works. So you are not you're not saved because you were baptized. You are baptized because you're already saved. And it's just like the circumcision of an eight-year-old, excuse me, eight-day-old baby boy did not make him right with God. It was more uh, the, the acknowledgement of the covenant. So the same way, baptism of a baby does not mean they're saved. So if you were baptized as a child and don't think you need to be baptized again, that is actually incorrect because you can't receive Christ as a child. You didn't understand. So you need to be baptized again as an obedience to God. But... It must be a conscious decision to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, and then you are baptized. That's why we only dedicate babies here. We dedicate them to the Lord, but that doesn't mean that that baby will be saved. There's a good chance because they have parents that are dedicated to teaching him of the Lord, but it is always their own decision. But you see, the Jews were proud of the notoriety of being the circumcised. What they didn't understand is that a Jew had received the physical mark of the covenant and that it was no proof that he was a man of faith. It was just a physical act. But since the hour that God called Abraham and circumcised him, God made a difference between him and the Gentiles. 
And he made this, this difference, not that the Jews might boast about it, which they were very boastful, but that they might be a blessing and a help to Gentiles. God set them apart so that he might use them to be a guide for his love and goodness to uh, the, the heathen nations. Sad to say, Israel kept this difference nationally. They kept it ritually, but not morally. Uh, they oftentimes kind of merged into the more uh, carnal cultures of the day. It must always, always be a work of the heart and not of the flesh. So remember that. Then verse 12 goes on to say, in those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel, and you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. Wow, that was our condition before we came to know Jesus Christ. So Paul is now talking about what the Gentiles were before Jesus. And remember, he's speaking to Ephesians. And they were all about their, their gods and the goddess Diana and all those kind of things. But it kind of shows their condition. First, they were without Christ. They knew nothing about the gospel. Therefore, they were under condemnation, weren't they? Just like we were before we knew before we received Christ. Second, they were without a spiritual citizenship. You see, God made the Jewish people a nation, a place where they belonged. But when you have all sorts of gods, you see, there's no unity within this culture when you have, I don't know, hundreds of gods. You know, it's said in, in Ephesus that there were more gods than there were people. So, you know, that's what they, there was no unity because everybody had their own view of who God was. I kind of see that in today's culture too, don't we? You know, God is whoever you want him to be. You know, it's like, mm, not quite. Third, they were without the promises of God. They had no hope. Much like many unbelievers today, they have no hope. If God is who you think he is, what you can conjure up in your mind. How do you put faith in that? And then fourth, they were, of course, without God completely. The ancient world had many gods, but they weren't real. And God called the Jews, beginning with Abraham, that through them he might reveal himself as the one true God. So it was truly a hopeless situation for the unbelievers. But God, I love that. But God, verse 13 says, but now, that's going to be my next two favorite words. First, it's but God. And then, but now, you have been united with Christ Jesus. Other versions will say you were once far off, but now you have been unified. You know, like a prodigal child that has come home and is now united with their parents. That's kind of how we were. We were all prodigals living in the world, and now we have been united with our Heavenly Father. How did this happen? Verse 13 goes on to say, Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, we have now been united, united with our Heavenly Father. 
And then verse 14 goes on to say, for Christ himself has brought peace to us. So what is, re- what is Paul referring to here? He's saying the peace is that he brought was getting rid of the enmity between the Jews and the Gentiles. We are now all one people if we've all received Jesus Christ. And this is a battle that still goes on even today. And it's been going on for millennia. Anti-Semitism is still an issue today, especially in the Middle East. But when Jesus came, he gave believers the ability to look past that. Whether you were a Jew or a Gentile, you could look past that because you are now united under one banner, and that was Jesus Christ. Remember, Paul is speaking to not only Christian Gentiles, but Christian Jews. So that's what he's addressing here, because apparently they had trouble getting along. So verse 14 continues on. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when, in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. When I read this, I go, oh, bam, drop the mic here. So although (laughs) racially Gentiles were different than the Jews, we are now all one family. We are all the family of God. But the reason why Paul had to address this was because there were still those that didn't really accept this new dynamic of the family. And it was really difficult for the early Jews to understand this. For centuries, they had been different from the Gentiles in in their religion, in their dress, in their diet, in their laws. There was like this big, big difference until God sent Peter. You got to love Peter, the the guy with kind of the the impulsive big mouth. God sent Peter, a Jew of Jews, to the Gentiles. And the church had no problems until then. But with the salvation of the Gentiles on the same terms as the Jews, in other words, they could could be saved just as easily as the Jews could, problems began to develop. In Acts chapter 11, if you want to read up on this a little bit more, you see where the Jewish Christians were reprimanding Peter for going to the Gentiles and eating with them. He he was eating Gentile food. Now, for a Jew to do that, I know some Jewish people, in fact, um, Christians that live in Israel still won't talk about eating bacon. It's like the other meat. You don't eat pork, even though, you know, they, they know it's okay now. The, that particular law has been done away with. They still can't get themselves to eat bacon or pork roast or ham. Oh, I can't even imagine how awful that must be because I love all of that, right? But you see, Peter goes in, he goes, hey, I don't have a problem with eating bacon. I don't have a problem with eating pork. And they're going, how could you do that, Peter? And this began a dialogue of the big questions. Must a Gentile become a Jew to become a Christian? See, they're going, okay, I think you need to become Jews, then you get to be a Christian. Some were even saying that the Gentiles should be circumcised and become 
true believers. Well, some were saying that the Gentiles must follow the dietary laws too. After all, I mean, bacon is horrible. Some were saying that they had to follow everything that the Jews had done to be saved. And so they're saying, could this be true? Their conclusion was, when talking with the, the real disciples here, is no. Jews and Gentiles are saved the same way, by faith in Jesus Christ and him alone. The enmity was gone. There was no reason for that wall to be there. So, in fact, the Jews no longer had to follow the old covenant laws either. So, they could eat all the bacon they want. And how did Jesus actually accomplish this? Verse 15. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. Now, does that mean you don't have to follow the the Ten Commandments? Of course That is what God requires, and they're all good things, aren't they? So we're not talking about that. We're talking about all the dietary things and all the feasts and all that kind of stuff. Jesus fulfilled all of that, said, you know what? I've done away with it because I am now the way of salvation. He says he made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. I love that. The Galatians had a problem believing this concept, so Paul wrote to them and set them straight. He had a lot to say on the matter, but a verse that has always stood out to me for obvious reasons. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. There's nothing more we can say here. We are all one in Christ Jesus. We're not many bodies. We are all one body. And, of course, we can apply that to our church today. Verse 16 goes on to say, Together, as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross. And our hostility towards each other was put to death. In other words, it shouldn't be happening. If the Ephesians and the Jews were still struggling with this concept, Paul reiterates this fact. See, Jesus earned the right to demand unity within the body of Christ. Didn't matter who you were, he demands unity. This is not uh, uh, open to discussion here. He shed his blood to bring the family all together. We must be unified. We must not let this enmity back into the body of Christ ever again. Verse 17, he brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who were far away from him and peace to the Jews who were near. So the Gentiles had no hope because they had no belief in God. Therefore, they had zero peace. The Jews were immersed in religion, but they were in constant disobedience to God. Therefore, there was no peace. And I'm talking about that internal peace that we all crave, don't we? The Jews were, were basically no better off than the Gentiles were. Everybody was in the same place. Then Jesus came 
brought everyone to that same place, and that was peace with God through the sacrifice of the Messiah. That's how that works. Then verse 18 says, now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. So basically what is being said here is that even though we all have different backgrounds, when Jesus died on the cross, we were all made equal. There's no difference. I think that makes it pretty clear, doesn't it? We all come to the Father in the same way no matter what. No matter what we've been through, we're all saved the same way. That is so reassuring, isn't it? So what is our key takeaway? Well, in God's kingdom, since we're all the same, why can't we still get along? Why do we still argue, gossip, slander? You see, many Jews hate Christians because they feel it was Christians that have been persecuting them throughout the centuries. The Holocaust was blamed on Christians. We know that was not true because Christians would not true Christians would do anything that horrendous. And I've heard Christians say, well, it was the Jews that killed Jesus. And I go, I don't understand that because Jesus was a Jew. So I'm going, I, but anyway, that's just how people are, aren't they? They're, they're valid questions, but the real question must be asked, are we truly talking about true believers when we're discussing the fact that they can't get along? So what does the Bible say about it? 1 John 3.14, if we love our Christian brothers and sisters, it proves that we have passed from death to life. But a person who has no love is still dead. Ooh, that's kind of convicting, isn't it? We need to check our hearts. 1 John 4.20 and 21, it says, if someone says, I love God, but hates a Christian brother or sister, that person is a liar. Yeah, Wow. For if we don't love people, we can see how can we love God whom we can't, cannot see. And he has given us this command. Those who love God must also love their Christian brothers and sisters. That's pretty clear, isn't it? So what does this all mean? If you love your brothers and sisters in Christ, you are a true believer. And I'm not saying you haven't had a bad day and you scream and yell at somebody. I'm talking about this is your life, your daily life. You hate other believers because of whatever, fill in the blank. And if you find out you do hate someone, you need to do a heart check. Wow, what does that mean? Well, obviously your relationship with the Lord isn't where it should be, and it could be even more detrimental. You could not be a believer at all. So Jesus talked on this subject. John 13, 34 and 35, it says, So now I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. That is how we prove to the rest of the world that we are Jesus' disciples. Otherwise, we look no different 
than the rest of the world. Therefore, we become ineffective to reach others for the gospel. You see how that works? But love is the most important thing that we have. It is the true sign of a believer in Christ. Now, we all know 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, but oftentimes we skip the beginning. Have you ever read that? 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1 begins, If I could speak in all the languages of earth and of angels but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, my son Brandon loves the drums. Ever since I can remember, early in high school, we got him a drum set. I know that was foolish, but we gave him a drum set. He put it in the garage, and I tell you what, those first uh, few months were almost unbearable because he loved his cymbals, and just bang, 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 and it's like, oh, my goodness, that gives me, that's giving me a headache. See, we're like that when we don't love people. <gasps> I don't want to be a clanging cymbal because I know what that sounds like. If I had the gift of prophecy and I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith, faith that I could move mountains but didn't love others, I would be nothing. So you could be like this amazing power Christian but didn't love others, and it would be for nothing. Nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it, but if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. You see what's being said here? The most important thing we can do as believers is to love others. So if you have trouble loving others, and there are always those people out there that you have trouble loving, you know what? What does God tell us to do? Confess, repent, and ask for love for that person. So, we've established the basic reason why we have quarrels, which is the lack of love. But we still sometimes have trouble getting along. So, let's look at some other verses. James 4, 1 through 3. It says, what is causing quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? In other words, you want your own way. You want to be the boss. You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. Of course, you know, I will scheme, but I've never killed to get my own way. <laughs> just, just saying. But you see, you could see how that would happen, uh, you know, in extreme situations. It says, you are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it. So you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even if you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. Ouch. I think we can all see ourselves a little bit in this scripture, right? So let's look at the result of the lack of love. You want what you don't have, you scheme to get it, you're jealous of what others have, you fight and wage war to get what you want. You see, these are all th things that mark us as an unloving person. So you might be saying to yourself, well, you know what, I'm justified. You don't know how this person is. After all, you know, doesn't God say, 
Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. No, 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 no. God is saying, vengeance is mine. In other words, he will make it right in the end. He will make it right. So you know what? You just kind of, Lord, give me love for that person or at least be able to get along with that person and let God do the rest. It is his job to convict the hearts. At the end of Ecclesiastes, King Solomon says, That's the whole story. Here now is my final conclusion. Fear God and obey his commands, for this is everyone's duty. God will judge us for everything we do, including every secret thing, whether good or bad. Ouch, he sees everything. Yes, he does. We cannot hide anything from him. But see, Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes to show us how futile it is to live our lives apart from God. That is what he's saying. And he writes this, and we should heed it. God sees everything, whether it's good or bad. You see, the bottom line is, if we have a lack of love, and we don't get along with our brothers and sisters, our peace is gone, isn't it? We have no peace. And we are called to live in peace with others. When we live in peace with others, then we have peace in our own hearts. And that is very important. Uh, There's a lot of scriptures about peace. I know we're going through tons of scriptures today. Matthew 5, 9. God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. That's important. This is, this is the scriptures. This is being told to us to do. Hebrews 12, 14 and 15. It says, pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord, looking carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up causes trouble. And by this, many have become defiled. So, what is our conclusion then? Let's go over what we just learned. Number one, through the shed blood of Jesus, we are now united. We're supposed to be all one family. Number two, Gentiles have received just as many blessings as the Jews. (gasps) There's now no difference. Number three, because of our unity, we should now live in peace. But peace can be elusive at times, can't it? And perhaps you found yourself convicted because you don't live in peace with someone. I know when I was reading this, I go, there are a few people that I would like to see that relationship restored, that peace restored. And always remember what 1 John 1, 9 says. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. A great companion passage to our scripture is found in Colossians 3, 5 through 15. And I will go ahead and read the whole thing because it is so important that we understand this concept. 
says, so put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you. He's talking to, Paul is talking to believing Colossians here. He says, have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Because of these sins, the anger of God is coming. You used to do these things when your life was still part of this world, but now is the time to get rid of anger, rage, malicious behavior, slander, and dirty language. Don't lie to each other, for you have stripped off your old sinful nature and all its wicked deeds. Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. See, it's a process. We won't become like Jesus the day we're saved. It's a process. We're being renewed. And Jesus promises to continue that work, doesn't he? Until we are complete. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, I love that, uncivilized, slave or free, Christ is all that matters and he lives in all of us. Since God chose you to be holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves, and I like that, clothe ourselves, like you're putting on uh, a shirt in the morning. You're supposed to clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Then it goes on to say, if that's not enough, Make allowances for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Oh, wow. <laughs> Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. It's not an option, ladies. I know, this is tough stuff, isn't it? Trust me, I'm just as convicted here. Above all, clothe yourselves. Again, putting that clothes, clothes on with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts, for as members of one body, you are called to live in peace and always be thankful. Wow. Isn't that a perfect companion to what we just learned in Ephesians? So what can we put in our treasure chest today? Well, we have unity with our brothers and sisters. We are now one body. It doesn't matter who you are. We also have a closeness to our, to our heavenly father. All equally. Remember what it said. No Jews, Gentiles, male, female, slave or free. Everybody gets the exact same blessings from God. And then we have peace. That peace that passes all understanding. And that's what is so important within the body of Christ. It's like peace and love are two sides of the same coin. You have one, you have the other. If you have the other one, you have the one. And that's so important that we love people and that we live peaceable with others. Amen? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this amazing scripture. And I would ask that... If there's anybody in this room that struggles with, with living in unity with their brothers and sisters, 
they have trouble living in peace, especially as the holidays are coming up and we have to, uh, in a sense, tolerate difficult people, whether it's just driving home and having crazy drivers or meeting people at the store. Lord, you know those things what sets us off. Would you give us love and peace for those people during those times? And so we thank you, Lord, for this amazing scripture and ask that you now bless our our discussion time, and we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.